Our New Testament reading this morning is from the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in the 12th verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Why do you make your, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the eighth chapter of John, passage that we read with Blake just a few moments ago. Before we look at this passage, let's pray together. And ask the Father to teach us. Children, you are dismissed to go learn how to worship. That's beautiful. It just is. Wow. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you this morning as the priests of Christ Presbyterian Church in Fayette County. This week, Father, we have tried to be your prophets out in the world, being salt and light to the world around us, praying that the world would see Christ in us, taking your gospel out. But now we come as priests to bring the world before you, to bring our concerns before you, to bring our brothers and sisters before you. Our Father, we pray for Jay and Bob's parents, Mr. and Ms. Walker. We ask that you would sustain them. Thank you that you've brought them thus far. We pray that you would bring a complete healing to their bodies, to their lives. We pray for Jim Holland, that, Father, you would quickly restore his health. We pray that, Father, you would give him years yet upon this earth, preaching your gospel and power 
in St. Patrick's in Collierville. We pray for Marjorie Walker this morning, Father, that the surgery this week will do what it's designed to do and that you would protect her life and keep her. Use this, Father, to restore her health completely. We pray for John and Carol Leake. We thank you that, Father, he's off the ventilator and we pray that he would be able to return home soon. We pray for the McKenzie family, Father, as Rick's, you called Rick's father home. We pray that, Father, you would bring your comfort to bear upon Rick. Bless Allison as she cares for Dad, and we pray that you would heal him. We pray for Debbie Turner as her date to have a knee replacement is approaching. We pray that you would bless the doctors that the surgery would bring healing and take away the pain. Thank you for Tony Hunt's surgery, Father. Thank you for the success of that surgery. We pray that, that there would be no complications. Father, we pray that you would bless with this shoulder surgery that's approaching and that, Father, this surgery would be without complications and bring healing. We pray for Beth, Father. Sometimes we're apt to say that, Father, that the pain is too great or the sorrow is too great. Father, there's no sorrow, there's not, no pain that heaven cannot heal. None. For your, your comfort is omnipotent, and we pray that you would comfort Beth. Bless our friend Tom Edwards, Father. We pray that you would bring healing a complete healing to his body. I pray for John Jr. this morning, Father. I pray that you would protect him from this disease, that he would, that you would keep him from complications, bring healing to his home. Bless little Laylee, Father, that she would not have any complications and be, and they just know a complete healing. Now as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Father, you know that I know this passage, but that's not enough. I can't teach so that hearts will be changed or so that we will grow in Christ from the inside out. So we pray for the presence of your spirit. Your spirit's here. And we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts, that we would look at this passage and say, I see, I see. Oh, Father, speak to us. Speak to your children for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, why should we believe you? 
Jesus, we've seen in chapter 7 and 8 of John, has been attending the great Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It was the second in significance in crowd. It was second only to the Passover. This was a huge feast that came at the end of the harvest season. We've seen that. This would be the last time he would actually go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Six months later, at the Passover feast, Jesus would be crucified. So this was his last feast of booths. But we saw that he went to Jerusalem, indeed went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And he made yet another claim to deity. Remember, we saw last week, he declared that he was the light of the world. Make yet another claim to deity. We focused only on that one verse, striving to understand it. 700 years before, during a time of intense darkness and suffering in northern Israel, where Galilee was, Isaiah had prophesied during the Assyrian occupation, during the time it was extreme suffering. You can think of Afghanistan. Extreme suffering and darkness. And in Isaiah, God spoke to Isaiah and prophesied that in the same region, in Galilee, one day there would be a great, great light. A light like the world had never seen. He said, this light would be a son, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, remember? He'll be a ruler. The government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That light would be the Messiah. So in John 8, 12, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was claiming to be that light, that light of which Isaiah had written. And the light of the world, the messianic age had dawned. We sang in a song this morning, the dawning of the king. Now, that's at the beginning of chapter 8. Skip ahead to the end of the chapter. The Pharisees and Jesus had been speaking about Abraham in this dialogue. Jesus announces that Abraham had seen Jesus' day and rejoiced. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. So the Jews said to him, and anytime it says the Jews, remember, he's speaking to the leadership. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. The, 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 the people of Jerusalem were Jewish. His followers were Jewish. But when, when it says the Jews all through John, he's speaking of the leadership. He's speaking of the Sanhedrin. He's speaking of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that statement, 
he not only claimed to be alive before Abraham, but he made another claim to be God. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he didn't do that. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Why did he say that? Look on your scripture sheet or turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Moses at the burning bush and God tells Moses to go to Egypt, lead his people out. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now you go back and Jesus says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. It's a claim to deity. One gigantic claim begins the chapter. I'm the light of the world. Another gigantic claim ends the chapter. Before Abraham was born, before Abraham was, I am. Between those two claims, this is what we read this morning. Between those two claims, we have a combative dialogue. Between the Pharisees and Jesus. And that dialogue has two subjects and only two subjects. You'll understand the dialogue if you know this. The two subjects are the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus and the unbelief of the Pharisees. That's what it's about. Very quickly, let's look at several of the verses and see that. So the Pharisees, look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about, about yourself your testimony is not true. You're saying this about your identity and you have unbelieving Pharisees. It's not true. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me, my identity. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? And Jesus said, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know me. He's claiming they know that they're talking about his father being God. And he's claiming to be one with him. If you knew me, you would know my father. About his identity and their unbelief. Look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. Again, it's about his identity. Verse 25. So they said to him, they actually said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. See, this is two and a half years into his ministry. He's saying, this is nothing new. I've said it over and over and over again. Look at verse 28. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, remember that's a messianic title. He's pointing, when you've lifted up me, the Son of Man, he's talking about the cross, then you'll know that I am he. Because there's going to be a resurrection. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord. Why do you not understand what I say? His identity and their unbelief. Look at verse 54. They said to him, this is, they asked, remember a minute ago, they asked him, who are you? Now they say, in verse 54, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answers, but if you have not known him, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I did not know him, I would be a liar. If I denied my identity, I would be lying. And then what we read this 
a moment ago. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Are you becoming convinced that the entire gospel of John is about Jesus' identity? That's why John said he wrote it. We looked at this last week. We looked at it before that, and we're going to continue to look at it so that it just becomes a part of our DNA. We understand this about John's gospel. It's about the identity of Jesus. Look at John 20, verse 30. Now, now Jesus did many other signs. He's writing this at the end of his book, and he says, hey, there were many other signs that I hadn't recorded. Many other signs in the that he did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, in this book. But these are written so that, this is a purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right. But the question then becomes, is John's record reliable? Did Jesus really say and do these things? Or did John just make them up? Did he just put words in Jesus' mouth to elevate Jesus to a position that Jesus did not really claim? Why am I saying that? The main argument of our culture, the culture of this country right now, go to the universities, go to graduate schools, go out into everyday culture. The main argument in our culture against Christianity is that Jesus really did not make these claims. He really did not claim to be the light of the world. He really did not claim to be God from eternity. That question is terribly significant. If John's record, if John's record is not reliable, if Jesus really did not make these claims, if he didn't do these miracles, then we're believing in fairy tales. We might as well dismiss and go on. It's a fairy tale. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth when he heard that there were, of all things, there were people in the church at Corinth that were teaching that Jesus did not rise from the dead? What did Paul say about that? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ, if Christ has not been raised, if you're right about that, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He said, we're of all the people on earth where Christians are the most to be pitied. Why? Because we're following fairy tales. We're building our lives on fairy tales. So we need to answer the question, are the Gospels reliable? Are the Gospels reliable sources of history? Universities, graduate schools, and even many seminaries would say, no, they're not reliable. I attended just such a seminary. I've experienced this firsthand. Many Protestant denominations teach that the Gospels are not reliable. If you were in a Presbyterian church in the United States of America, the denomination that we came out of, this is not the, the, we're the PCA, we're the Presbyterian church in America. But the Presbyterian church in the United States of America 
This is what this is what you're going to hear in their seminaries. The gospels are not reliable. Our children, when they attend secular schools, this is what they will hear. How did we come to this point? How did we get here? Let me tell you a story. Hang with me. It's a very important story for you to know. In the 17th and 18th centuries, a movement came out of the Enlightenment calling in doubt biblical revelation that God had spoken in Scripture. Their presupposition coming out of the Enlightenment that it was ridiculous to think that God actually spoke into our world. That any book would be called the Word of God. They said, we have come of age. Man has come of age. The world has come of age. We must be ruled by reason, not revelation. Now, there had always been in the church a method of research called lower criticism. And we've talked about this before. Lower criticism was a good, good thing. It sought to produce the most accurate translation from the ancient texts of Scripture. But the movement coming out of the Enlightenment developed a method called higher criticism. And higher criticism was quite different. Higher criticism was an effort to destroy anything supernatural in scriptures. They presupposed that an angel, uh, the Red Sea parting, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. It had no place in Scripture because it was an expression of the supernatural. They wanted to demonstrate that the Bible was man's creation, not God's. And so they would study ancient cultures, literary genres, characteristics of ancient cultures. Characteristics of individual writers and submit their ideas as to how the Bible developed from many, many, many different unnamed sources. They removed miracles. They removed the Jesus claims to deity. They said he really didn't say this. The apostles put those words in his mouth. Thomas Jefferson was a part of this movement. Using these methods, Thomas Jefferson created his own New Testament. Now, he focused on Jesus. He didn't do this for the whole Bible, but he focused on the New Testament, the gospel. He loved Jesus' ethical teaching, but he could not abide the claims of deity or the miracles of Jesus. He was thinking, if he's a great teacher, he wouldn't have said things like this. He had no evidence for it. It was just presupposition. He went through the New Testament and literally with a razor, he cut out everything supernatural. He would have cut out the angels visiting there. And he created Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. Thomas Jefferson's Gospels. 
There were no incarnation, no miracles, and no claims of deity. Now, this movement, we're still in this story. Stick with me. It's important. This movement evolved through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. It became known as the search, the quest for the historical Jesus. Maybe you've heard about it. The brilliant scholar, missionary, and minister, Albert Schweitzer, was a powerful adherent to this effort. He was at the center of historical, at the center of higher criticism at the turn of the century, last part of the 18th century, first part of the 19th century, or excuse me, the 20th century. However, Schweitzer wrote a book in 1906 that was titled Quest for the Historical Jesus. In this book, he summed up the last 200 years, all the efforts that had been made in higher criticism. However, his book actually stated that the quest had failed. Schweitzer admitted that when they had cut out everything in their scholarly criticism, Everything their scholarly criticism would allow them to cut out. There was still Jesus in the Gospels. There were passages they couldn't cut out. There was still Jesus standing there claiming to be God and claiming to be miraculous. This was a major hit to the liberal movement. In spite of Schweitzer's findings, in spite of this classic book, the liberal movement has continued to limp forward. Schweitzer loved the ethical teachings of Jesus. He didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe in his miracles. He did not believe in the resurrection. So you ask, what did he believe about Jesus? What did he believe about Jesus? He taught that Jesus believed indeed that he was the Messiah. That he did make these statements, could not be denied, and that he thought he had a Messiah complex. And he thought that he would bring in the kingdom of God, that he would bring in the eschaton, the, the end of the world, through his death on the cross. He taught that Jesus died a disillusioned, would-be Messiah on that Roman cross. In other words, Schweitzer taught that Jesus died on that cross a disillusioned lunatic. Now that's the story. The proponents of higher criticism should have learned from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, think about it, the Pharisees wanted to destroy this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah as much as the modern critics did. They wanted to do away with him. But in all their efforts, they could not keep Jesus from claiming to be God. They tried. 
They ask in so many different ways. We saw it this morning. Who are you making yourself out to be? When Jesus told them before Abraham was, I am. What did the Pharisees do? Look at verse 59. They started picking up stones, the penalty for blasphemy, the penalty for claiming to be God was to die by stone. They were picking up stones. They were going to stone him to death right there. Why? Because he claimed to be God. This wasn't John putting the words in his mouth. The proponents of Irish criticism should have talked to the Pharisees. They were absolutely convinced Jesus was claiming to be God. At the trial of Jesus, at the end of the gospel, what was the accusation? There was only one accusation. Jesus made himself out to be God, and the high priest actually looked Jesus in the face. They were standing face to face, and they had heard all these other witnesses that they had paid to come forth saying, he said this, he said that. And he looked and he said, who are you? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes. When someone tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, Schweitzer, the liberal's own hero, said, yes, he did claim. But Jesus' claims are also the basis for the death penalty against him. The Pharisees literally affirmed that Jesus was making these claims. That's why they killed him. The Pharisees present another problem. To the modern denial of the miracles of Jesus. They wanted to destroy the miracles of Jesus as much as As the folks in higher criticism. They were, but they were there. They saw the miracles. They couldn't deny them. If it was trickery, that would have been exposed. They said things when he healed people in the super, supernaturally just by fiat. They said it, it must be the devil in him doing this. We, we will see that again next week as we move into chapter 9. What are we saying? This is not a fairy tale. Faith in Jesus is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is a wise, intelligent decision. But I want to take something else out of this. The Pharisees here stand in their unbelief as a stark warning to the church in every age. These Pharisees served this morning as a stark warning to Christ's Presbyterian church. Think what these Pharisees had. They had the entire Old Testament that had pointed to the coming of the Messiah. In our studies, we've seen over the years that Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. How come Israel was looking for a Messiah in the first place? Because for centuries and centuries and centuries, they had seen it in the Old Testament. God had said over and over and over again, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The very fact that they were looking for a Messiah tells you that that's what the Old Testament taught. 
And they had the Old Testament. They had been looking for centuries. They knew the details of where he was to be born. They knew the details that he would have a powerful ministry in Galilee. He would be a great king, and yet he would be a servant. He would be God, and yet he would suffer. These very men that are questioning him had spent their lives. These were the leaders of the Old Testament church. They had spent their lives in this study. Yet here was Christ in their midst, the Messiah. And they were conspiring against him. This is not the Romans doing this. This is, this is the church of the Old Testament. And then they not only had the body of the Old Testament, they had his teaching. They had been listening for two and a half years. They had the miracles. They had been watching for two and a half years. Miracles that they could not deny. They had all of this. And yet we've said this over and over again. We're going to come to it finally. In the Gospel of John. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we read that they not only continued to conspire to kill Jesus, but they conspired to kill Lazarus because he was living evidence. People were believing in Jesus because of that. He was living evidence. Lazarus was. That Jesus was who he said he was. I want us to see this. If you think that can't happen here. That can't happen in the PCA. That can't happen at Christ Presbyterian Church. Yes, it can. They had so much. And yet somewhere along the way, the gospel got changed. The word got changed. And they got it wrong. Jesus actually says in our scripture this morning that the church had become an instrument of Satan. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Those are strong words, people. He's speaking to the leaders of the church. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. This was not a licentious Herod that Jesus was addressing. It wasn't a pagan Roman governor, Pilate. These were the highest and most revered religious leaders of Israel. And he said, you are of Satan. Agents of Satan. People, it is heartbreaking to see the dominance of Satan and evil in the culture of the world. To see the secularism in our culture and see the evil. It's satanic. It's awful. It's heartbreaking to see. It is even more hideous, however, to see Satan actually at work deep into the church. Through the Pharisees, he was actually changing the Old Testament church's 
message of salvation. That's what he said here. Look at verse 30, 32. If you abide in my word, you will show you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Twice they used their relationship to Abraham to point to their good standing. We're not slaves to sin. What did the Pharisee do? Ask yourself this question. What did this Pharisee, what did the Pharisees do when they went to church? What did they do? When they went to church to pray, what did they say to God? Jesus tells us in a parable from Luke 18. Look at it. Luke 18, 10. Stick with me. We're almost at the end. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax cutter. Look what the Pharisee prayed. He tells us what the Pharisee said to God. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. In other words, I'm glad I'm not a sinner. What's the first thing we require in membership of the church? The very first question. The very first question we ask if someone joins a church. Are you a sinner whose only hope is Jesus Christ? It's not a denial of sin. It's a confession of sin. And then the Pharisee says, look how righteous I am. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I can. He told God, they, they, the way of salvation had been changed. Well, folks, this is rampant in the church today. Start asking. Let me tell you something you can do. Start asking people you know. I'm not talking about just people that go to evangelical churches. Ask them. But ask people that go to churches of all sorts. And ask them, are you a Christian? I'll do that. And you will hear, well, my father was a, did you know my father was a minister? Did you know my grandfather was a minister? You'll hear, my family has been in the Presbyterian Church for three generations. You'll hear, am I a Christian? Adrian Rogers baptized me. In my last year in seminary, I'll never forget this. You've heard me talk about Robert Todd Lapsley Liston. He was my college president and came to teach in the seminary where I was. He was one of the few, few real Bible-believing teachers there. The rest were mostly unbelievers. I was right at the end. I was just about to leave to go to Virginia, to Cedar Bluff, Virginia, to a church there. Ironically, that Dr. Liston had pastored at one time. And Dr. Liston said, John, going into any church in our denomination, It could easily be that 80% of the members have no idea about salvation through grace. 
and salvation through the blood of Christ. This man was a brilliant scholar, several doctrines. He was a gentle man, a kind man. But he believed that. And in my view, it turned out to be very true. A church or 80% of the membership doesn't even know the gospel. I sat in a church in Atlanta, Georgia the first year I was in seminary. I was required to go to this church. You could sit in that church for a year and never hear the gospel. This is a church that had once been in a powerful denomination that did know the gospel. When I was writing this, I had to put this in. When I was young in the ministry, there was a man who was my father's age, powerful, powerful preacher, came out of West Virginia, great man. He had been a lawyer and became a preacher, became a minister. He was a really good evangelist, powerful preacher. He said, one time, he said, I asked this young man, he said, are you a Christian? The young man stammered for a minute, and then he looked at me and he said, well, my wife's mother goes to church. <laughs> how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. The seminaries were eaten alive by higher criticism. Remember he said, to the Pharisees, you're following after Satan, the father of lies. Well, Satan took over the pulpits of that denomination that I was in. He made sure the gospel of grace through the blood of Christ was not taught. He couldn't destroy the cross. But he could. And strives daily to change the message. From the pulpit. Never heard the blood of Christ. Men denied that Christ made these claims. Men denied the miracles of Jesus. Men denied the cross as an atoning sacrifice. The holiness and justice of God was removed. You're okay and I'm okay. And when we die, we'll all be okay. Do you know why this bothers me so much? You say, John, you, you keep talking about these things. You know why this bothers me so much? I'm your minister. I stand behind this pulpit. I'm supposed to bring you God's word every, every week. I'm supposed to tell you about Jesus, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. I'm to teach that we're born sinners in need of a Savior. What if I get it wrong? That's what bothers me the most. That's why we have elders. That's why Mike is sitting there this morning. Blake is sitting there. If I didn't, if I preached something contrary, 
I can tell you Mike would stand up and say, John, you got to come down. We can't have it. If someone had done that in these other churches, those churches would have stayed faithful. Think of the children that grew up in those churches and never heard that they were little sinners that needed saving. Never heard about the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 4.16 we read, and this is the end, keep a close watch on yourself. Paul said to this to a young pastor, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine, on your teaching. That's what the word doctrine means, teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save yourself and your hearers. If I get it wrong, I'm going to become a part of you getting it wrong. So I say to you this morning, do you know that you're a sinner? I don't care how many years you've been in the church. I don't care whether you come in a Baptist church, Presbyterian church, Episcopal church. Do you know that you're a sinner? Don't ever come through those doors telling God how good you are. That's satanic. You come through that door. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I've heard there's a savior here. And that he died for us. Amen. Our hymn. All glory be to Christ. If he is indeed the Savior, and we're not saved by our good works, then all glory goes to Christ.